Well, children, I, when, I was a, when I was a little boy, I was little once, I know that might be surprising, but once upon a time I was little and I went to a church in Hamilton called Aberdeen. Okay, And it was called Aberdeen because it was on the road called Aberdeen. I know, very fancy name. And outside of this church, there was a tree. And it looked a whole lot like an apple tree. In fact, it looked so much like an apple tree that it had fruit on it that looked like apples. That's pretty weird, eh? And, and I used to often sort of go into church and I'd see the apple tree there. It was on public property, by the way. And I would think to myself, man, I really want to try one of those apples. They look really, really good. And so one day after church, I thought to myself, I'm going to go get one of those apples because I love apples. So I walk outside to this apple tree, and there's some apples on the ground, and there's a few left up on the tree. And I think to myself, well, the ones on the ground are probably not very good because they're like eaten by worms and people have stood on them and they're looking a bit gross. But I'll get one of the ones off the tree. So I, I climb up the tree, I pick one of the apples, and I hop down with my prize. And I was very happy with my apple prize. Not yet, you've got to wait for the question. I was very happy with my prize as I get down with this apple. And I bit into this apple, and I was shocked. There wasn't a worm inside it, if you're thinking that that's what's going to happen. But I bit into this apple, and it was hard. And it was sour, and it was gross, and it was bitter and disgusting. It, I was like, what kind of apple is this? Who plants an apple tree with apples that taste like this? This is the worst apple I've eaten in my life. And so I threw the apple away, as you do. Should have put it in the bin, but I don't think I did. So I threw the apple away, and then that, that day I hopped in the car to go home from church, and I said to Mum, Mum, I ate one of those apples on that apple tree, and it was disgusting. And she said to me, of course it is. I said, Why? She goes, because it's a crab apple tree. I went, oh, I don't know what a crab apple tree is, but apparently it's a type of apple when they make these little apples. Apparently you can make like um, jam out of them and it's pretty good, but turns out they're not good for eating. They're hard and disgusting. And well, at least this one was. And, and I learned an important lesson that day that not everything that, that sort of looks the part is necessarily the real thing. It's a little bit like when you go up to one of those bushes with berries on it, and you go, oh, I love berries. And mum says, don't eat the berries. Those are not good berries to eat. But they look yummy. Well, they may look yummy, but they're actually poisonous. See, sometimes things might look good or even sound good, but they're actually not. See, that's a picture of what we're going to be looking at in the Bible today. We're going to be looking and thinking about a word called hypocrisy, which is a very big word, which means you say one thing or you say you are something, but actually inside you're something very, very different. And God hates hypocrisy. And so we're going to be looking at the hypocrisy in Crete among the false teachers. And we're going to be learning some things about hypocrites so we can spot them in the church, but especially so that we can guard ourselves from falling into it as well. And we all need help with that because we're all a little bit tempted to do it. So let's pray and ask God to help us to be who we are in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the fact that you have made us a special people in God. And we pray that you would help us to be your people and not to fall into hypocrisy. Help us not to be false, but to be true. 
And Lord, we thank you that you love us and that you love these little children. And we pray, Lord, would you continue to call them to yourself. That, Lord, by faith they might lay hold of the glorious promises that you've given them. Help us as a church to gather around them and build them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're turning through to the little letter of Titus. If you're a visitor here among us, we've been working our way through the little letter of Titus over the last few weeks. We find ourselves drawing to the end of chapter 1 and looking at chapter 1 verse 16. We'll pick up at chapter 1, verse 9, and read through the end of the chapter, but our text is just the 16th verse today. So that was Titus chapter 1, verse 9, and this is God's holy and infallible word for you this morning. He, being an elder, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word to us. And before we consider it, let us come before him in a time of prayer. Lord, what a privilege it is to be able to hear from you today. And we pray, Lord, that as we come together as your people and sit under the preaching of your word, that, that you would build us up and that, Lord, you would be pleased to cause your word to bear much fruit in our hearts. Lord, we, we long to be conformed to the image of Christ. And we, we know that the way you have chosen to do that is through your word. And 
by submitting ourselves to it. And so we pray that, Lord, as we put ourselves under the yoke of your word, that you would make it a great delight for our hearts, that we would feast on heavenly morsels, and that we might behold wondrous things in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> now, everyone, everyone hates a hypocrite, don't they? You never really hear someone saying, you know, I really love hypocrisy. That's just one of my favorite things. One of my favorite character traits in a person is that they're really hypocritical. No one says that, do they? Whether it's, you know, the climate change expert who flies on a private jet across the world for their climate change conference, or whether it's the person that's passionate about gender equality but isn't particularly worried about women fulfilling the really gross jobs that no one wants to do, or whether it's the parent that says, don't do as I do, but do as I say. We, we all, we're all offended by hypocrisy, aren't we? So is God. I mean, there's, there's not many things that Jesus spoke more about than hypocrisy in the New Testament. I mean, his seven woes were for the Pharisees and scribes because they were hypocrites. Now, now most of you know what a hypocrite is, right? Most of you have probably heard that the, the word, the Greek word, comes from an actor, from a play actor, because, of course, back in that day, they didn't have uh, 8K TV sets or zoom lenses, and when a person was acting in the center of a very small stage in a very big arena, they had to find a way of communicating their emotions to the people around them. You know, you can imagine, right, if you're in the back of a stadium and there's a small person acting in the center, how can you tell what's on their faces? And one of the ways they worked around that was by having large sort of masks, big masks, which expressed what was going on in the, in the show. So if they were angry, they'd have a big angry face. They were hypocrites because they're not actually angry on the inside, are they? But on the outside, it's showing it. That's where we understand what a hypocrite is. It's someone who puts on an outward show, acts in a certain way, speaks in a certain way, but there is something different. It's not true, right? Paul turns his mind to the false teachers. He's been dealing with them for a few verses as we've been looking at it, right? There's these false teachers in the church at Crete, and Paul has told Titus that he needs to silence the false teachers. He needs to rebuke the people that are listening to them. And now Paul delivers his final death blow. He now describes what these false teachers truly are so that people might see them and spot them. And of course, so that the people of Crete themselves may not fall in to the error that these false teachers had. And the first thing he points out is the hypocrite's profession. The hypocrite's profession. You see it there, don't you, in verse 16? They profess to know God. They profess to know God. 
Now, how, how do you understand that? You shouldn't understand that like they have no knowledge of God, you know, like they're crazy pagans who have no knowledge of God, but they claim to. Rather, when he says they profess or confess, they're acknowledging something which is kind of true. They have a knowledge of God, you might say. They profess to have a knowledge of God. Or to say it differently, they know a lot about God. If they had been here this morning, or if they are here this morning, when we stood up and did our confession of faith, they would have happily said all of it. If they had been invited up here this morning to take membership vows, they would have happily taken them. If they had been sitting in the pews when you made promises to Carlo and Julia, they would have happily made those promises. They do have a knowledge of God. In fact, they have a robust knowledge of God. They're teachers, right? You might even call them experts. They're, for all intents and purposes, exactly what you might think of when you think of a really wonderful, intellectual, expert in religious things or Christian things. And in fact, I dare say, if they went to GTC and sat under Jeff, they'd probably pass all their classes. And if they did an ordination exam, they'd probably pass because they knew of God. But you know, not everything that quacks is a duck, right? Sometimes the apple tree is a crab apple tree. First, first glimpses are not always accurate. And, and you know, there, there's a really important lesson in this for us. Often we can assume, and, and I don't mean this in an in an accusatory fashion, but often we can assume that everybody that claims to be a Christian is a Christian, right? And that everybody in the church is a true Christian. It's just not true. This is one of the reasons we preach the gospel Sunday by Sunday. This is one of the reasons we call people to repent and we call people to believe. Because in every gathering, there's always a Cain and an Abel. There's always an Esau and a Jacob, right? There's always a Judas Iscariot in the midst. And so that, that should cause us, in accordance with Ecclesiastes, to be careful when we go to the house of the Lord. Why? Because even there, you will find the fall. It's striking, isn't it, that when Jesus came to his own, when Jesus came to his own in John, it tells us that he did not entrust himself to anyone because he knew what was in their hearts. I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you've entrusted yourself into someone. 
and it's come back to bite. You've been betrayed. It's not a pleasant experience, is it? Now, now, of course, this doesn't mean that we should have this insane distrust of every single person in the church, right? But we must recognize that not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is of my number, Jesus says. So how do we know? How, how, do we, how, how are we meant to know if it's not just what we say, right? Uh, Paul says, firstly, notice their profession. Notice the hypocrite's profession. But then he says, notice the hypocrite's rejection. Notice the hypocrite's rejection. Have a look at the text. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. So with their mouth, they say, I am of the Lord. But with their works, they say, I am not of the Lord. Now, that's pretty straightforward, right? It's pretty clear cut. They say one thing, but they live a very, very different way. Their, their actions don't match up with what they confess to be true about themselves. We've all run into these people, haven't we? People who say one thing and do something drastically different. It's everywhere. Well, it wasn't any different back then. C consider Matthew 7 with me. Turn to Matthew 7. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is drawing near towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and he turns his attention to what, what people ought to do with his teaching. And how you ought to judge those who receive it. And in Matthew 7 verse 15, we read these words. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What's going on? They come as ravenous wolves, but professing to be sheep, right? And, and brothers and sisters, uh, 
What we're being warned of is that there are people in the church like this who will stand up and say, yes, I believe. Yes, I know the Lord. And, and it's a little bit like you see from a distance from a distance, a glorious fruit tree, maybe an orange tree. You see this lovely looking orange tree, you know, but it's right away on the other side of the paddock. You can't make it out. You just know it's an orange tree. And so you go, great. The tree is declaring itself. It's professing itself to be an orange tree. And so you go up to the orange tree, and as you draw near, you get closer and closer, and then eventually you get there and you pick up the orange and you know what it's like when you, when you put your hand in the fruit bowl and get the squishy one at the bottom and you grab the orange and your hand punches straight through it and you go, oh, I found the one bad one. And you grab another one and another one and another and every single piece of fruit is decaying and rotten. You stand back and you think to yourself, there's something not right here. But what if you drew near and expecting to find oranges, you walked up and, and you saw figs on it? You think to yourself, there's something, something not quite right here, right? It's an orange tree producing figs. What on earth's going on? That's not right. That's not normal. And Paul's saying, brothers and sisters, don't judge them by what they speak but judge them by what they do. Does their mouth match up with how they live their lives? And, and this fits perfectly, doesn't it, with the qualifications? You remember the qualifications of elders? Why is it so important that he is a faithful husband and he is a faithful father and that he lives as a faithful, godly man? Because that's the evidence, the outworking, that this is a man that is suitable to be an elder in the church. You don't, you don't go to a man in the church and say to him, do you think you're good to be an elder? And he says, yes, I do. And you go, well, that's a good enough profession for me. Let's make him an elder. You don't do that, do you? No, you examine his life. And Paul's saying, this is what you ought to do with every teacher. Don't just listen to what they say, but examine their life. You know, there's some lessons in this for us, isn't there? It's not enough for us, brothers and sisters, just to say we believe. We must live like we believe. We must live in accordance with the profession we make, right? We must be bearing fruit, whether it's the tiniest smallest little baby fruit because we've just become a believer or whether it's a hundredfold makes no difference. But we must be producing something because if we're a believer, we've received a new heart, right? And so the, the evidence of the work of God in our life will be that we're producing fruit. Is it Because the problem is, you and I, we can't judge hearts, right? I mean, it would be really handy if we could, like Jesus, who knew what was in the hearts of people. If when the elders sat down to examine someone for membership, we could just like look into the heart and be like, yeah, 
Turns out this person's legitimately regenerate. Not a problem. That would be real easy and much quicker. But we can't do that, do we? we? We sit with them and we have to listen to their story and we consider how they live and we look at their pattern of life and we think about what's going on in their life in order to try and ascertain whether the Lord has done a work in their heart. And so let me ask you this morning, are you producing fruit in keeping with righteousness? Or or not? Because the the production of fruit, even, even honestly, brothers and sisters, even if it's just a kernel, even if it's but a mustard seed-sized piece of fruit, that piece of fruit is a testimony of God's grace in your life. And don't judge. Don't judge by feeble frames like what someone else's fruit look like. But rather, what what has God done in my life? Am I growing? Am I walking in the fruits of the Spirit? Do I see more self-control? Do I see more patience? Do I see more love? Am I being transformed into the image of Christ day by day? Because if not, maybe the most important question you need to consider for yourself today is, Am I but a professor who actually needs to become a confessor and come to Christ and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Do the work within me that I might produce fruit. But this this brings us to our third point. So, So Paul says that they, the hypocrite's profession is one thing. The hypocrite's works, his fruit, is another thing. It rejects that he actually knows God. But the question you have to ask yourself is why? What, what is it about the state of these false teachers? Why is it that they profess one thing and do something completely different? They profess and yet deny. And Paul tells us, have a look at the text. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Why? They are detestable, disobedient, and disqualified for any good work, unfit for any good work. What's wrong with these false teachers? What has gone on that enables a person to make a profession of faith and yet never bear any fruit? There's something wrong within them, right? I mean, you think about a tree. If you've got a tree that is producing diseased fruit, you can't fix it by cutting all the diseased fruit off and stapling good fruit on it, right? It'll look good, but it's not going to last very long. There's something wrong at the core of the tree, whether it's in the root base, whether it's the soil is 
toxic, whatever it is, there's something at the root that is causing a problem. And the only way to solve it is to fix the heart of the tree. And that's the problem with these men, right? Their heart is corrupted. Notice the hypocrite's corruption. Paul states three things about this corruption. And, and it's, it's almost, you, you almost need to hear it with, with an ironic tone to it. They are detestable, or they are an abomination, which is really quite ironic because they're the ones that saying, are saying, we are clean because we keep the law. We are clean because we observe the commands of man. Paul says that they are not just detestable, but disobedient, which is ironic, isn't it? Because they've been telling everyone that this is the way to be obedient. My path is the path of obedience. Ignore everything else. Follow my way. I am the truly obedient one. And they are disqualified, which again is very ironic because they were telling everyone the only way to be qualified in the Lord is to follow the commands of men and Jewish myths and circumcision party talk. see, what had gone on in these men is that their hearts, having never been healed, having never been restored, having never been regenerated, created for themselves and those around them what is acceptable, what is obedient, and what is qualified. But what they didn't realize was that they were just making themselves further corrupt further dead. They were bearing fruit in keeping with their heart, right? What was the only solution? Well, in John it says that if Jesus makes you clean, you will be clean indeed. As I said, cutting off the fruit and replacing it's not going to work, is it? Next season, it's just going to be all dead and poisoned again. The only solution is to have the heart of the tree dug out, to be born again to a living hope, to be effectually called by God, to have a work of the Holy Spirit inside of you. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, I don't produce any fruit. In fact, all the fruit I produce is dead. What hope do I have? The only hope you have is that God does a work in your soul and in your heart. And you might say to yourself, well, how do I get that? You cry out to the Lord and you say, Lord, make me new. Give me a new heart that not only I might believe, but I might walk before you. I might walk as your people and with you as my God. You cry out to the Lord and have mercy. Like we sung, God, be merciful to me. And he delights to do that work. You see, what happens, what happens is there's a diseased and gnarled and twisted fruit coming from a terrible tree and, and the heavenly botanist comes 
and he begins to do work at the sole of the tree. And he cuts back the dead wood and he, he digs out the toxic soil and he replaces it and he fertilizes it and he heals it and he restores it. And at first, what does the tree look like? It looks just as gnarled and twisted and gross, right? But when you come back in a year, what do you find? The heavenly botanist has begun to cause the tree to bear fruit. And as the tree begins to bear fruit, you stand back and you see it blossom and become fuller and more glorious and more beautiful. Until the final day when it's fully healed and it no longer produces any bad fruit again. Isn't that the story of our life, brothers and sisters? He comes to us and He gives us a new heart and He restores us that we might bear good fruit, that we might walk with good fruit, that we might live like Christ. And He does that work day in and day out, putting sin to death, bringing good works to life over and over again until one day when we are sown into the ground and raised up immortal, and raised up clean, and raised up pure. Brothers and sisters, if you feel like you don't have much fruit today, don't be discouraged. Because doesn't our Heavenly Father, doesn't our Heavenly Father dress the vine whom He loves? Doesn't He prune it? And all of the vine, all of the vine branches that bear fruit, they stay attached to the vine forever, right? But what does Jesus say? But those branches that do not bear fruit are cut off and thrown into the fire. You see, the fruit is the proof that we are a tree of God's making. And so the challenge for each and every one of us is twofold. Firstly, beware of false professors. If Judas Iscariot was able to live for three and a half years in the presence of Christ and his disciples, and when he gets to the point of betraying Jesus, all the disciples assume he's going to go and do some charitable good work. Remember that? Three and a half years he's been living with them. The disciples don't have a clue. They think he's the best guy. There's a reason why Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And they all say, is it me? None of them say, is it Judas? Beware of the Judas. who will profess much and yet sell his Savior for 30 pieces of silver. But especially, beware of the temptation to be a Judas yourself. And walk in godliness, for you have been set free and you have been made clean. Or as Paul would put it, 
in chapter 2, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to say no, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. May God be pleased to grant us to do so, that each and every one of us may yield a harvest 100-fold or 60-fold or 30-fold for the praise of His glorious grace by His Holy Spirit of sanctification. Let's pray. <coughs> Father in heaven, we thank you that you delight to heal twisted and now poisoned trees. And we pray, Lord, protect us from hypocrisy from without and from within. That, Lord, we might walk truly and faithfully before you. We thank you, Lord, that, that because we have received this glorious grace, we may produce what is good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.